Hello, traveler. I'm so glad you made it in here before the storm. Just in time. I can hear the thunder rolling in now. Here, come over here and get warm with me by the fire. There. Isn't that better? The music is supposed to start soon. But I can tell you a ghost story to help pass the time. What do you say? Yeah, good. Sit back. Relax. I'll tell you one I just heard from another traveler. It's called The Empty House. Oh, listen. Do you hear that? The thunder is just starting. What perfect timing for our story. Are you ready? Let's begin. The Tale of the Empty House Certain houses, like certain persons, manage somehow to proclaim at once their character for evil. In the case of the latter, no particular feature need betray them. They may boast an open countenance and an ingenious smile, and yet a little of their company leaves the unalterable conviction that there is something radically amiss with their being, that they are evil. Willy-nilly, they seem to communicate an atmosphere of secret and wicked thoughts which makes those in their immediate neighborhood shrink from them, as from a thing diseased. And perhaps with houses, the same principle is operative, and it is the aroma of evil deeds committed under a particular roof, long after the actual doers have passed away, that makes the goose flesh come and the hair rise. Something of the original passion of the evildoer and of the horror felt by his victim enters the heart of the innocent watcher and he becomes suddenly conscious of tingling nerves, creeping skin, and a chilling of the blood. He is terror-stricken without apparent cause. There was manifestly nothing in the external appearance of this particular house to bear out the tales of the horror that was said to reign within. It was neither lonely nor unkempt. It stood crowded in a corner of the square and looked exactly like the houses on either side of it. It had the same number of windows as its neighbors, the same balcony overlooking the gardens, the same white steps leading up to the heavy black front door. And in the rear, there was the same narrow strip of green with neat box borders running up to the wall that divided it from the backs of the adjoining houses. Apparently, too, the number of chimney pots on the roof was the same. The breadth and the angle of the eaves and even the height of the dirty area railings. And yet this house in the square that seemed precisely similar to its fifty ugly neighbors was as a matter of fact entirely different 
horribly different. Wherein lay this marked invisible difference is impossible to say. It cannot be ascribed wholly to the imagination, because persons who had spent some time in the house, knowing nothing of the facts, had declared positively that certain rooms were so disagreeable they would rather die than enter them again, and that the atmosphere of the whole house produced in them symptoms of genuine terror, while the series of innocent tenants who had tried to live in it had been forced to decamp at the shortest possible notice was indeed little less than a scandal in the town. When Shorthouse arrived to pay a weekend visit to his Aunt Julia in her house on the seafront at the other end of the town, he found her charged to the brim with mystery and excitement. He had only received her telegram that morning, and he had come anticipating boredom. But the moment he touched her hand and kissed her apple-skin wrinkled cheek, he fought the first wave of her electrical condition. The impression deepened when he learned that there were to be no other visitors, and that he had been telegraphed for with a very special object. Something was in the wind, and that something would doubtless bear fruit, for this elderly spinster aunt with a mania for psychic research had her brains as well as willpower, and by hook or crook, she usually managed to accomplish her ends. The revelation was made soon after tea, when she sidled close up to him and they paced slowly along the seafront in the dusk. I've got the keys, she announced in a delighted yet half awesome voice. Got them till Monday. The keys of the bathing machine, or... He asked innocently, looking from the sea to the town. Nothing brought her so quickly to the point as feigning stupidity. Neither, she whispered. I've got the keys of the haunted house in the square, and I'm going there tonight. Shorthouse was conscious of the slightest possible tremor down his back. He dropped his teasing tone immediately. Something in her voice and manner thrilled him. She was earnest about this. But you can't go alone, he began. That's why I wired for you, she answered. He turned to look at her. The ugly, lined, enigmatical face was alive with excitement. There was the glow of genuine enthusiasm round it like a halo. Her eyes shone. He caught another wave of her excitement, a second tremor, more marked than the first. Well, thank you, Aunt Julia, he said politely. Thank you awfully. I should not dare to go alone, she went on, raising her voice. But with you, I should enjoy it immensely. You're afraid of nothing, I know. Thanks so much, he said again. But is anything likely to happen? A great deal has happened, she whispered, though it's been most cleverly hushed up. Three tenants have come and gone in the last few months, and the house 
house is said to be empty for a good while now. In spite of himself, Shorthouse became interested. His aunt was so very much in earnest. The house is very old indeed, she went on, and the story, an unpleasant one, dates a long way back. It has to do with the murder committed by a jealous stableman who had some affair with a servant in the house. One night, he managed secret himself in the cellar, and when everyone was asleep, he crept upstairs to the servant's quarters, chased the girl down to the next landing, and before anyone could come to the rescue, threw her bodily over the banisters into the hall below. And the stableman was caught, I believe, and hanged for murder. But it all happened a century ago, and I've not been able to get more details of the story. Shorthouse now felt his interest thoroughly aroused. But, though he was not particularly nervous for himself, he hesitated a little on his aunt's account. One more condition, he said. Nothing will prevent my going, she said firmly. But you may as well state your condition. That you guarantee your power of self-control if anything really horrible happens. I mean, that you are sure you won't get too frightened. Jim, she said scornfully, I'm not young, I know, nor are my nerves. But with you, I should be afraid of nothing in this world. This, of course, settled it. For Shorthouse had no pretensions to be anything other than a very ordinary young man. An appeal to his vanity was irresistible. He agreed to go. Instinctively, by a sort of subconscious preparation, he kept himself and his forces well in hand the whole evening, compelling an accumulative reserve of control by that nameless inward process of gradually putting all the emotions away and turning the key upon them. A process difficult to describe, but wonderfully effective, as all men who have lived through severe trials of the inner man well understand. Later, it stood him in good stead. But it was not until half past ten when they stood in the hall well in the glare of friendly lamps, and still surrounded by comforting human influences. They had to make the first call upon this store of collected strength, for once the door was closed, he saw the deserted, silent street stretching away white in the moonlight before them. It came to him clearly the real test that night would be in dealing with two fears instead of one. He would have to carry his aunt's fears as well as his own, and as he glanced down at her sphinx-like countenance and realized that it might assume no pleasant aspect in a rush of real terror, he felt satisfied with only one thing in the whole adventure, that he had confidence in his own will and power to stand against any shock that might come. 
Slowly they walked along the empty streets of the town. A bright autumn moon silvered the roofs, casting deep shadows. There was no breath of wind, and the trees in the formal gardens by the seafront watched them silently as they passed along. To his aunt's occasional remarks, Shorehouse made no reply, realizing that she was simply surrounding herself with mental buffers, saying ordinary things to prevent herself thinking of extraordinary things. Few windows showed lights, and from scarcely a single chimney came smoke or sparks. Shorthouse had already begun to notice everything, even the smallest details. Presently, they stopped at the street corner and looked up at the name on the side of the house, full in the moonlight. And with one accord, but without remark, turned into the square and crossed over to the side of it that lay in shadow. The number of the house is 13, whispered a voice at his side, and neither of them made the obvious reference, but passed across the broad street of moonlight and began to march up the pavement in silence. It was about halfway up the square that Shorthouse felt an arm slipped quietly but significantly into his own, and he knew then that their adventure had begun in earnest, and that his companion was already yielding imperceptibly to the influences against them. She needed support. A few minutes later, they stopped before a tall, narrow house that rose before them into the night, ugly in shape and painted a dingy white. Shutterless windows without blinds stared down upon them, shining here and there in the moonlight. There were weather streaks in the wall and cracks in the paint, and the balcony bulged out from the first floor a little unnaturally. But beyond this generally forlorn appearance of an unoccupied house, there was nothing at first sight to single out this particular mansion for the evil character it had most certainly acquired. Taking a look over their shoulders to make sure they had not been followed, they went boldly up the steps and stood against the huge black door that fronted them forbiddingly. But the first wave of nervousness was now upon them, and Shorthouse fumbled a long time with the key before he could fit it into the lock. For a moment, if truth were told, they both hoped it would not open, for they were a prey to various unpleasant emotions as they stood there on the threshold their ghostly adventure. Shorthouse, shuffling with the key and hampered by the steady weight on his arm, certainly felt the solemnity of the moment. It was as if the whole world, for all experience, seemed at that instant concentrated in his own consciousness, or listening to the grating noise of that key. A stray puff of wind wandering down the empty street 
woke a momentary rustling in the trees behind them. But otherwise, this rattling of the key was the only sound audible. And at last, it turned in the lock, and the heavy door swung open and revealed a yawning gulf of darkness beyond. With a last glance at the moonlit square, they passed quickly in, and the door slammed behind them with a roar that echoed prodigiously through empty halls and passages. But instantly, with the echoes, another sound made itself heard, and Aunt Julia leaned suddenly so heavily upon him that he had to take a step backwards to save himself from falling. A man had coughed close beside them, so close that it seemed they must have actually been by his side in the darkness. With the possibility of a practical joke in his mind, Shorthouse at once swung his heavy stick in the direction of the sound, but it meant nothing more solid than air. He heard his aunt give a little gasp beside him. There's someone here, she whispered. I heard him. Be quiet, he said sternly. It was nothing but the noise of the front door. Oh, get a light, quick, she added, as her nephew, fumbling with a box of matches, opened it upside down and let them all fall with a rattle on the stone floor. The sound, however, was not repeated, and there was no evidence of retreating footsteps. In another minute, they had a candle burning, using an empty end of a cigar case as a holder, and when the first flare had died down, he held the impromptu lamp aloft and surveyed the scene. It was dreary enough in all conscience for there is nothing more desolate in all the abodes of men than an unfinished house dimly lit, silent, forsaken, and yet tenanted by rumor with the memories of evil and violent histories. They were standing in a wide hallway. On their left was the open door of a spacious dining room, and in the front the hall ran, never narrowing, to a long, dark passage that led apparently to the top of the kitchen stairs. The broad, uncarpeted staircase rose in a sweep before them, everywhere draped in shadows, except for a single spot about halfway up where the moonlight came in through the window. It fell on a bright patch on the boards. The shaft of light shed a faint radiance above and below it, lending to the objects within its reach a misty outline that was infinitely more suggestive and ghostly than complete darkness. Filtered moonlight always seems to paint faces on the surrounding gloom, and as Shorthouse peered up into the well of darkness, and thought of the countless empty rooms and passages in the upper part of the old house. He caught himself longing again for the safety of the moonlit square, or the cozy, bright drawing room they had left an hour before. Then, 
Realizing that these thoughts were dangerous, he thrust them away again and summoned all his energy for concentration on the present. On Julia, he said aloud, severely, we must now go through the house from top to bottom and make a thorough search. The echoes of his voice died away slowly all over the building, and in the intense silence that followed, he turned to look at her. In the candlelight, he saw that her face was already ghastly pale. As she dropped his arm for a moment and said in a whisper, stepping close in front of him, I agree. We must be sure there's no one hiding. That's the first thing. She spoke with evident effort, and he looked at her with admiration. You feel quite sure of yourself? It's not too late. I think so, she whispered, her eyes shifting nervously towards the shadows behind. Quite sure. Only, there's one thing. What's that? You must never leave me alone for an instant. He looked at her. As long as you understand that any sound or appearance must be investigated at once. For to hesitate means to admit fear. Fear is fatal. Felt as if his blood had stopped flowing and turned to ice. The sounds were not downstairs at all. They were upstairs. Upstairs somewhere among those horrid, gloomy little servants' rooms with their bits of broken furniture, low ceilings and cramped windows. Upstairs, where the victim had been disturbed and stalked to her death. At the moment he discovered where the sounds were, he began to hear them more clearly. It was the sound of feet moving stealthily along the passage overhead, in and out among the rooms and past the furniture. He turned quickly to steal a glance at the motionless figure seated beside him, to note whether she had shared his discovery. The faint candlelight coming through the crack in the cupboard door threw her strongly marked face into vivid relief against the white of the wall. But it was something else that made him catch his breath and stare again. An extraordinary something that had come into her face and seemed to spread over her features like a mask. It smoothed out the deep lines and drew the skin everywhere a little tighter so that the wrinkles disappeared. It brought into the face, with the sole exception of the old eyes, an appearance of youth and almost of childhood. He stared in speechless amazement, amazement that was dangerously near to horror. It was his aunt's face indeed, but it was her face of forty years ago, the vacant, innocent face of a girl. He had heard stories of that strange effect of terror, which can wipe a human countenance clean of other emotions, obliterating all previous expressions. But he had never realized that it could literally be true. 
or could mean anything so simply horrible as what he now saw. For the dreadful signature of overmastering fear was written plainly in that utter vacancy of the girlish face beside him. And when, feeling his intense gaze, she turned to look at him, he instinctively closed his eyes tightly to shut out the sight. Yet, when he turned to her a minute later, his feelings well in hand, he saw to his intense relief another expression. His aunt was smiling, and though her face was deathly white, the awful veil had lifted, and the normal look was returning. Anything wrong was all he could think to say at the moment. And the answer was eloquent, coming from such a woman. I feel cold and a little frightened, she whispered. He offered to close the window. But she seized hold of him and begged him to not leave her side even for an instant. It's upstairs, I know, she whispered with an odd half-laugh. But I can't possibly go up. But Shorthouse knew otherwise, knowing that inaction lay their best hope of self-control. He took the brandy flask and poured out a neat glass of spirit, stiff enough to help anybody overcome anything. She swallowed it with a little shiver. His only idea now was to get out of the house before a collapse became inevitable. But this could not safely be done by turning tail and running from the enemy. Inaction was no longer possible. Every minute, he was growing less master of himself and desperate. Aggressive measures were imperative without further delay. Moreover, the action must be taken towards the enemy, not away from it. The climax, if necessary and unavoidable, would have to be faced boldly. He could do it now, but in ten minutes, he might not have the force left to act for himself, much less for both. Upstairs, the sounds were meanwhile becoming louder and closer, accompanied by occasional creaking of the boards. Someone was moving stealthily about, stumbling now and then awkwardly against the furniture, waiting a few moments to allow the tremendous dose of spirits to produce its effect, and knowing this would last but a short time under the circumstances. Shorthouse then quietly got to his feet, saying in a determined voice, Now, Aunt Julia, we'll go upstairs and we'll find out what all this noise is. You must come too. This is what we agreed. He picked up his stick and went to the cupboard for the candle. A limp form rose shakily beside him, breathing hard. And he heard a voice say very faintly something about being ready to come. The woman's courage amazed him. It was so much greater than his own. And as they advanced, holding aloft the dripping candle, some subtle force exhaled from his trembling, white old woman at his side. 
that was the true source of his inspiration. It held something really great that shaped him and gave him the support without which he would have proved far less equal to the occasion. They crossed the dark landing, avoiding with their eyes the deep black space over the banisters. Then they began to mount the narrow staircase to meet the sounds which, minute by minute, grew louder and nearer. About halfway up the stairs, Aunt Julia stumbled and Shorthouse turned to catch her by the arm. And just at that moment, there came a terrific crash in the servant's corridor overhead. It was instantly followed by a shrill, agonized scream. That was a cry of terror, and a cry for help melted into one. Before they could move aside, or go down a single step, someone came rushing along the passage overhead, blundering horribly, racing madly at full speed, three steps at a time, down the very staircase where they stood. The steps were light and uncertain, but close behind them sounded the heavier tread of another person, and the staircase seemed to shake. Shorthouse and his companion just had time to flatten themselves against the wall, when the jumble of flying steps was upon them, and two persons, with the slightest possible interval between them, dashed past at full speed. It was a perfect whirlwind of sound breaking in upon the midnight silence of the empty building. The two runners, pursuer and pursued, had passed clean through them where they stood, and already with a thud, the boards below had received first one, then the other. Yet they had seen absolutely nothing, not a hand, or arm, or face, or even a shred of flying clothing. There came a second's pause, then the first one the lighter of the two. Obviously, the pursued one ran with uncertain footsteps into the little room which Shorthouse and his aunt had just left. The heavier one followed. There was a sound of scuffling, gasping, and smothered screaming. And then out onto the landing came the step of a single person treading weightily. Dead silence followed for the space of half a minute, and then there was heard a rushing sound through the air. This was followed by a dull, crashing thud in the depths of the house below, on the stone floor of the hall. Utter silence reigned after. Nothing moved. The flame of the candle was steady. It had been steady the whole time, and the air had been undisturbed by any movement whatsoever. Motivated by terror, Aunt Julia, without waiting for her companion, began fumbling her way downstairs. She was crying gently to herself, and when Shorthouse put his arm around her and half carried her, 
He felt she was trembling like a leaf. He went into the little room and picked up the cloak from the floor, and arm in arm, walking very slowly, without speaking a word or looking once behind them. They marched down the three flights into the hall. In the hall, they saw nothing. But the whole way down the stairs, they were conscious that someone followed them, step by step. When they went faster, it was left behind. And when they went more slowly, it caught up to them. But never once did they look behind to see. And at each turning of the staircase, they lowered their eyes for fear of the following horror they might see upon the stairs above. With trembling hands, Shorthouse opened the front door, and they walked out into the moonlight and drew a deep breath of the cool night air blowing in from the sea. And that, my traveler, is how this story ends. Do you think we have time for another? Oh, do you hear that? What perfect timing. The band's just getting started. Would you care to listen with me? Listener ends today's reading. Again, if you would like to donate or share anything to help Whiskey Hangover, please check out the link to the GoFundMe that can be found in this episode notes. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, thank you for being such a supportive and incredible community. I hope that you are able to rest well and that you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night, my darling.